0: Well, we're talking about the church today, so I want to begin by asking a question. What is our culture's perception of church? And I'm speaking broadly, the church, not necessarily this church. So maybe you could think about someone you know who wouldn't consider themselves a Jesus follower or someone you know who's not familiar with the church. What would they? How would they describe their experience of the church? I'm generalizing here, but I think people tend to fall into one of three responses. And the first is probably the largest group of people, and they would be neutral. So they would maybe say the church isn't terrible, but they also don't see a lot of good that the church is doing. Maybe they describe the church as confusing or weird, (laughs) boring, irrelevant. They feel like, how is it possible that something that happened and started so long ago could have any bearing on my life now? Others might have a more negative reaction. They'd say the church is inauthentic, fake, hypocritical maybe even. Maybe they have seen how people behave one way on Sundays and then differently the rest of the week. Some would go so far as to say the church is actually harmful or damaging, either by unhealthy teaching or thinking or worse by sexual or physical abuse that was not handled well. And that is tragic when that is the case. Others, and perhaps you may think this is a smaller percentage, but they are legitimate nonetheless, and I have met many of these folks, they would have a positive experience of the church. For these people, the church was life-giving. It became their home or their family. It became the first place in which they found connection or belonging, or caring, or friendship, or real hope. And these people would tell you that their lives actually got better when they connected more into Christ's church. Because it's amazing what can happen when the church gets it right. The truth is, the church can be all of these. In fact, the church has been and continues to be all of these. And where she is not all God wants her to be, Jesus mourns. The Holy Spirit is grieved because that's not God's intent. God's intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. God's intent is that we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's intent is that those watching our worship and our lives would be amazed and would say, Surely, God is among them. And God's intent is not unrealistic. In fact, it has been this way before. Several weeks ago, we started a new sermon series called The Acts of the Apostles. And in it, we're studying the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. Written by one of the earliest followers of Jesus, Luke, Acts gives us an eyewitness account of how the Christian church began. And our passage today gives an amazing summary of how the early church functioned together. This passage we're looking at today is one of the high points from this book about the church's early existence. If we were to pick one passage where the church got it right, this would be it. We'll read the passage in a moment, but I want to set some context first. Because the danger, of course, in reading such a mountaintop experience is that it feels too unattainable to us. The picture painted from these verses is so ideal, so beautiful, we can start to feel like the gap between what is and what ought to be is too great to be reconciled. But we must remember this is just one snapshot of the early church's life. We should not interpret it in isolation from the rest of the book. Not all the moments were positive. In fact, in just a few weeks, we'll be looking at chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, one of the first married couples to swindle the church, we're going to look at their story, and it is not a pretty moment, believe me. And there are many other moments like that in the book of Acts. In fact, in the majority of the New Testament letters, they are written to churches giving instructions for them on how to be the church because they'd gotten off track somehow. They were not living as they were intended to. And that's to be expected, isn't it? Because the church, remember, is people. People saved by God's grace, to be sure, but people nonetheless. Frail, petty, prideful, selfish people who, even with our good intentions at times, do not instantly become perfect the moment we decide to follow Jesus. And so as we read these verses that give a summary of this particular snapshot of the church's life together, let us remember this is just one snapshot, but it is a beautiful snapshot. It captures some of the essential characteristics of the early church, which made it so effective. And as such, we may find we want God's church to be characterized by these traits as well. We may find, as we read this today, we want our church to look like this. And I believe it can. Because the good news that first church proclaimed is still true today. We have just sung about it. Jesus Christ, come, died, risen, coming again. And the Holy Spirit, whose coming and presence preceded this particular snapshot, has not left his church. And the people watching in from the outside still need hope and healing. And our God stands ready to respond to the prayers of his people. For he promised his first disciples in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he always keeps his promises. And so as we approach this passage today, my intent is not that we would be discouraged as if this is something unattainable for us. My goal is that we this would remind us of who we are meant to be, so that by God's grace we can live into that more. Hear now the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Acts chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven. It's page 1659 in your pew Bible, or you may follow along with the words on the screen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by all the apostles. And the believers were together and had everything in common. I want to highlight seven characteristics, not in any particular order, that I see in these verses about the early church, and then we'll spend the last few moments thinking about what that might mean for us at City Church, okay? The first quality the early church was known for is that it was a learning church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now this is really interesting given the radical manifestation of the Holy Spirit they had just witnessed at Pentecost in the previous verses, which we talked about last week. Apparently, the early church's embracing of the Holy Spirit did not lead to anti-intellectualism or to an isolated mystical union with the Spirit. On the contrary, their embracing of the Holy Spirit caused them to sit at the apostles' feet and learn from them. Now, this shouldn't really surprise us. Since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, we need not become anti intellectual in order to fully embrace the gift of the Spirit. The apostles' teaching for them meant everything Jesus had taught. For us today, this has been preserved by the Holy Spirit in the books of the New Testament. But we value all of God's word, both the Old and the New Testaments, which is why we allocate 25 of our 60 minutes every week in our worship services to teaching from the Bible. The Bible is our guide, our authority in life, and so we seek to learn from it and submit ourselves to it. The second characteristic we see in Acts 2, 42 to 47, is that the early church was a gathering church, They gathered together regularly in both formal and informal ways and were therefore well connected to one another. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word fellowship or koinonia means sharing in common, together. They devoted themselves to being together, being in community. Verse 46 gives a little more description how they did this. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, or as the New American Standard Version reads, from house to house, temple courts and house to house. They had more formal times of gathering in the temple courts where undoubtedly they prayed and worshiped, but they also supplemented those services with more spontaneous, informal gatherings in various homes. No one home could support all those believers. Their new life in Christ was so radical, they needed help from one another to support it. And that's why many churches today follow this pattern of large worship services and then smaller groups of people meeting together informally for prayer and Bible study. The early church had a strong priority on being connected together. They knew that without being connected to other believers, we can become isolated and find it difficult to live the life of faith. We were never meant to do this alone. It's interesting because in verse 47 we're told the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The late Bible teacher John Stott said Jesus did two things here. He saved people, but he also added them to the church. In fact, he notes Jesus never saved them without also adding them to the church. We're not intended to walk the Christian life alone. In fact, we cannot be the church without one another. As missiologist Leslie Newbigin wrote, the whole church together communicates the gospel more powerfully than any one individual Christian can. That's why we need different denominations and the global church to keep us in check from our own uh, limited, narrow focus. This kind of togetherness or commitment to one another more than ourselves was manifested in very radical ways. For the third trait we see here is that they were a loving church. Verses 44 to 45 describe just how much they were committed to one another. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, despite what some have assumed, this is not referencing any kind of communism or socialism. Nowhere do Jesus or his followers condemn the owning of private property. Nor do they command absolute voluntary poverty as a requirement for all followers of Jesus. In fact, as we just read, not all the believers were giving up their homes because they were using them to meet in daily. Both verbs in verse 45 sold and gave are in the imperfect tense, suggesting this was something they did occasionally in response to a particular need, not something they did once and for all. In addition, later on in chapter 4, where Luke is going to elaborate on what this practice looks like, it's clear from the story he tells about Barnabas selling a field and and giving the profit to the church that this is an unusual event. And in chapter 5, I've already mentioned Ananias and Sapphira The problem isn't that they didn't give all their money. The problem was how deceptive they were about it. All this to say, this was a voluntary sharing of what they had in order to provide for those who did not have enough of the essentials of living. Nevertheless, all followers of Jesus are called to a life of generosity, particularly towards those in need. And that's what this passage is demonstrating here. Years later, Jesus' disciple John would say it like this, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? One pastor wrote, Christian fellowship is Christian sharing, or Christian caring, and Christian caring is Christian sharing. Let me say that again. Christian fellowship is Christian caring and Christian caring is Christian sharing. And the fact that we have so many destitute brothers and sisters among us, not just in this community, but in the global church, is a standing rebuke to those of us who are more affluent. It is part of our responsibility as spirit-filled believers to alleviate needs in the community of those who follow Jesus, and this is convicting. Fourth, this first community of Jesus' followers was a worshiping church. The literal translation of verse 42 is they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Most likely that breaking of the bread is in reference to the Lord's Supper Communion, which we'll celebrate in a moment after the sermon concludes. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the central focus of all those first followers did. And their regular participation in the table acknowledged that. The prayers here is most likely referencing corporate prayers together in the service, not individual private prayer. Their services were characterized by both reverence as well as joy. Verse 43, filled with awe. Verse 46, glad hearts. And that word glad is actually exuberant hearts. Joy is a mark of the believer, and joy is to characterize our life together. Fifth it was a praying church. As one writer put it, these Christians knew they could not meet life in their own strength, nor did they need to. They always went in bef- to God before they went out into the world. They were able to meet the problems of life because they had first met with Him. Would that we would have the same perspective. When I am overwhelmed by all I have to do, and I wake up in the morning, I often think of what Martin Martin Luther said when he said, I have so much to do today, how could I not take time to pray? Sixth, it was a church where things happened. In a church where the Holy Spirit had visited, and the people were regularly seeking God in prayer, many signs and wonders or miracles were performed by the apostles. Apostles. As in the case of sharing of possessions, it doesn't appear from other passages in the Bible that miracles are expected to be part of the believer's experience. And yet, it's clear that Luke believes in the value and effect of miracles as a way of authenticating God's work and the lives of his followers. Just as it's wrong to expect miracles always to happen, it's also wrong to rule them out from happening. How can we who desire God's spirit to be present in us maintain this balance? Lastly, it was a winsome church, verse 47, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Of course they were. And of course he did. This is how it works. How could people witnessing this not be drawn in? This was something distinctive. These Christians were not like everyone else. They were generous. They really cared and they showed it. They had hope. They saw evidence of God at work. They were connected to one another. They were like family. Winsomeness requires being different or distinctive from our culture, but not in a judgy way. We've all been around people who are so distinctive, so good, too good for the rest of us, in fact. True winsomeness is not just being different, but being loving also. A friend gave me an article this week, and I love how the writer put it. The gospel produces communities of people whose corporate life is simultaneously offensive in its distinctiveness, yet winsome in its love for the world. Would that we would be distinctive enough, separate enough from our culture that we have something to offer it doesn't have. And yet close enough, loving enough that they would know they can have it too. These are the seven characteristics of the early church we want to emulate. We want to be a learning church, a gathering church, a loving or sharing church, a worshiping church, a praying church, a church where things happen and a winsome church. Maybe as you hear these seven, you feel personally convicted by one. Maybe you wanna commit to being more devoted to one of these traits over the next few months. Maybe you'll wanna join our prayer team, employing God to be at work in our lives. We covet your prayers always. Or maybe you're inspired to help your growth group focus a little more on studying the Bible. Whatever it is God seems to be prodding you towards, I encourage you to follow that leaning. But if none of those stands out to you, perhaps we can consider how we as a community can grow in these areas. For what it's worth, from my perspective, for our particular community at City Church, four of these stand out to me as areas we can all grow in. The first is being a gathering community. Our culture idolizes individualism. We have so few models of what true community looks like. What does it mean to prioritize the community over my individual preferences and wants? Luke Gustafson, who you heard from for announcements, our new youth pastor, has been doing a series with our students, it sounds fantastic, Contributor versus Consumer. And one of the students said to me, this is really good, I think this is a message we should all hear, and I quite agree. How do we shift from thinking about what we can get to what we can give? And I don't mean what we give to Just City Church, but to God's church. This is closely tied to the second area we can perhaps grow in, being a loving or sharing church, using our financial resources to help those around us in need. Already some of you are being stirred up in this way, and it's been so fun to see. In the last two weeks, I've talked with some of you who are eager to see us bless others who are in need, and we've been talking about how to do that. From families meeting monthly to disperse funds anonymously to those they know who are in need to increasing the amount of money we give our partners even if we feel like we don't have a lot of financial margin to do that. I would ask you to join us in praying for wisdom in knowing how to do this and then to be looking for new opportunities that will come. We can all certainly grow in this area of loving and sharing our resources. Another place for us uh, to grow at City Church may be that we become a church where things happen. Now, to be sure, things are happening. And one of my great joys on Sunday morning when we gather is to look around and see how God has met you in amazing ways, sometimes miraculous ways, of how he has met your needs. And that is a privilege to watch. When I go to Alpha and hear stories of people talking about how God has been speaking to them, drawing them to himself, things are happening. But to be honest, we are a sensible bunch here at City Church. We're pretty highly educated. So I have to wonder at times, how much more might actually happen if we expected more from God? Where has cynicism from previous disappointment given way to complacency and hopelessness? Where might God's spirit want to be at work if only we were open to it? And lastly, I think we can all grow in becoming a more winsome church. And by that, I mean, how can we be separate enough from our culture to have something to offer they don't have, and yet close enough for them to know we are willing to share it? How can we be both countercultural as well as loving? That's the kind of posture that will win the respect of all those looking in from the outside. And we must be this way, for people are indeed watching, and people are in need of real life. And it's amazing what can happen when the church gets it right. So many of us can get discouraged when we think about all the ways the church hasn't gotten it right. And I would put myself in that category as someone who has served in the church for over 20 plus years. I have seen how the sausages get made. And I hold myself responsible for how we seek to lead God's church. But our response to this should be neither one of paralyzing guilt and discouragement nor finger-pointing critique. Okay, I told Luke the day he was... um, the day he candidated, that I still remember lessons my youth pastor taught me. And that was a long time ago now. And one of the things he said a long ago was, whenever you're pointing the finger, there's three pointing back at you. Just keep that in mind. That's sort of Jesus, you know, specking your own eye, planking, specking your brother's eye, planking your own. So the point is not finger-pointing critique, because frankly, the evil one would love nothing more than to reduce us in response to this text to discouragement, or paralyzing, or guilt, or criticism. Our response instead is to press into these characteristics, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us and fill us afresh to be the church in this day and age. Because the message of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's very presence to his church is just as real as it was that first day at Pentecost. And Jesus promised to those first followers, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is just as reliable as it was back when he first made it. And the people around us looking in on what we have to offer are just as in need of rescuing as they were that first day in Pentecost when 3,000 signed up. And God's intent is still that through the church, he might be made known. We are it, friends. There is no plan B. And so with all those resources available to us, with all those promises from our God that we can depend on, How can we not have any other response than to seek forgiveness for how we have failed and to ask for his help moving forward? Because it's amazing what happens when the church gets it right. And there is so much at stake. Let's pray. Oh God, we need not look far. (laughs) in any church, in this church, in our hearts, to look and listen to this text and say, could it really be? Was it really that way? That's amazing. That's so not often our experience. Oh, Father, we ask you to forgive us for the places in which we have not been your church. We ask you to fill us now by your Holy Spirit that we might more faithfully be your winsome witnesses for Jesus' sake, amen.